So we continue our series on words of wisdom, uh, power, praise, and the Apostle Paul. And, and so um, we're f- focusing the first part of this, and we're going to talk about Thessalonians, the second half. The first half has to do with Philippians. And so I remind you all last week is the Philippians really is, it's amazing, because Paul, so the Apostle Paul is writing back to this church in Philippi. It's um, about 800, year, 800 miles from well, here he's at. He's actually in Rome. He's waiting to be actually sentenced, or, and he doesn't really know if he's going to live or die. He's in, uh, actually in house arrest. And so, in the midst of li- actually being in prison, um, and his whole life really hangs in the balance, he continues to write back to his other churches, and he's writing back to Philippi, and he, and this is known as the epistle of joy. So there's actually 14 times the word joy is mentioned in this particular uh, letter, and it's a very short letter. It's only four chapters, but this is what scholars believe they call it the epistle of joy. And so what we talked a little bit about um, finding joy in adversity last week and my time of my sermon is having to find a silver lining. And so this week we're going to talk a little bit more about actually finding joy even in the midst of conflict. And so let me begin by uh, reading one little excerpt from the uh, from the Paul's letter to Philippians, the second chapter. And so let me just begin by reading the first five verses. He goes like this. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from, from, from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So I was thinking about this whole idea about joy and happiness. There is a little difference between happiness and joy. And so I started thinking about what brings, what makes me happy. So, you know, um, we had men's breakfast, you know, for years and then we didn't, we had to put it on hold for COVID. It's coming back next, uh, next month. We look forward to that. And I remember the guys, we would celebrate these from time to time is that somebody would get a hole in one. And so the, when word got out, the person got a hole in one. Then my friend Wayne Underhill would go and present the person who got a hole in one and everybody would clap and everybody was happy with them. So I know the person who got a hole in one, they were very, very happy. So they were happy. Uh, and then the other things that might make you happy, like for example, when you get a new car, a new car may make you happy. But here's the reality about buying a new car, that once you go through a McDonald's drive through and then you once again gum it up with the French fries that fall in between the seats and you spill a Diet Coke, it's not new anymore. And the new smell, it just kind of wiped right off. So once again, it can make you happy, but it just makes you happy well, fairly temporarily. It doesn't, well, it makes you happy maybe for a little short time. Today I went running. This is a beautiful thing. This really made me happy. I didn't get bit by a dog, which is great. So this was a good thing. That made me happy. Um, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, you know, after the Olympics, we started this little little league thing. And so there's a picture of, here's a picture of these boys that actually they're playing for the World Series this afternoon there. I would say that they look pretty happy. Here's the reality is they're really happy, but you know who's even more happy? Their parents. Happy, happy, happy. There, there is a difference between happiness and joy. So the happiness usually is when we think about the context of, well, um, usually it can be temporary. It can be fleeting. It's, it's a lot of times happiness is based on our circumstances. We've got a new car or our kids are happy or you hit a home run. You won the game. Got a home, you know, some of these things that can make us happy. 
But joy really is a deeper sense of the way that we look at life. It's a deeper sense of contentment. It's about looking at life and, and, and having this, this deeper sense of our well-being and, and how we can really focus upon the goodness of the love of Christ and so one of my friends came in my house, uh, came into my office this last week and, um, and she shared with me, she says, Pastor, I really appreciate lately how you've been tying in the message of salvation. I said, well, thank you very much. And so here's the thought. Knowing that I'm gonna go to heaven within a shadow of doubt, knowing that I have the joy of Jesus Christ in my heart, knowing that I have the joy of Christ's salvation, that brings me joy. Can I amen on that? So there is a difference between something that can be temporary and it can be based on circumstances, but there's a difference between how we look at life through the lens of Jesus Christ and can even find joy in, in our circumstances when things aren't really going so well, as I talked about last week about the silver lining, and sometimes even find joy in the midst of conflict. There's um, a, a little boy that lives um, next door to us. Um, I'll call him Johnny. And um, I, I love this kid. He's, uh, he's, out, he's in third grade. He's about this tall. And um, you can picture a freckled face, little boy. He's got kind of strawberry red hair. And he comes over to my house fairly frequently. And um, he's always, and he loves to talk. Oh, man, he loves to talk. Matter of fact, yeah, he, the other day he talked for about 15 minutes without even taking a breath. He... <laughs> Loves it. He comes over, and, and so he comes to our house, and he's always looking for something to do, and he just, and so uh, he'll go in through our garage. He just, you know, once again, wait, wait, he, we're neighbors. He's always going through our garage. He says, hey, Pastor Harold, can, can I borrow the, that bucket of baseballs? Can, I'd like to hit right now. I said, sure. Go ahead, Johnny. Take, take the bucket balls. And so he picks it up, and he's lugging over to his front yard, and I said, he says, can I borrow the bat and the, and the glove, too? I said, sure, Johnny. Go ahead. Whatever you want, go ahead. So then he did that. And then the other day, he came in, and he was wanting to he saw a football, and he says, can I borrow that football? I said, sure, Johnny, go ahead. So he goes off and plays with his sister, and he goes and plays catch with the football. And then the other day, he came in, he saw one of Cameron's skateboards in the garage. He says, Pastor, do you think that, uh, that, that uh, Cameron would mind me borrowing that skateboard? And I said, I'm sure that Cam Cameron would be happy for you to be able to. So he goes off, and he goes skateboarding down the street. And so he comes over, and the other day, after he did all that, then he wanted to talk, and he was so excited because he had gone to school that day and he had to tell me everything that happened at school. But the most important thing that happened at school this last week was he played his teacher in chess. And so I have my little chess set up here. It's my visual aid. I, you know, I got to get my money's worth. If I got seven bucks invested in this visual aid here. So, um, and so when he was started talking about how he had played his teacher in chess, he was so excited because he said that he beat his teacher in chess. He says, Pastor Harold, you're not going to believe it, but I checkmated him, right? I mean, that's the object of the game is to be able to checkmate. That's if, you, if you checkmate the king, then you know you, you have won the game. So I, I, in keeping with that, I, I went and actually did a little research about chess and I found out the, the literal translation from the word that we use in English is checkmate, but the original connotation on the beginning of the game that was actually started thousands of years ago, the, word, the game chess, it comes from a Persian phrase, mate, which means to render the king helpless. 
That's what it means. When you checkmate someone, it's the, it's the last move of the game to checkmate, to render the king helpless. So then I started thinking about, okay, I remember, now I don't know when Harley Beans about chess. I mean, I'm, I played a few times. I mean, you got, you know, they got the king and the queen, the rook and the pawns and all the, the knights, and that's about all I know. Um, but I do know that this guy right here is really important because, you know, if you checkmate the king, you render him helpless, then the game is over. Now, out of all the people who've ever played chess, probably the most famous person that's ever played chess is this guy. Here's a picture of him. Can you put that picture up? Bobby Fischer. I don't know if you realize this, but I did a little research about Bobby Fischer this last week. At the age of 14, he was the best chess player in America. Amazing. At the age of 28, he was the best chess player in the world. Amazing. What's really amazing is that, you know, um, he, was, he was the king at rendering the king helpless. Bobby Fischer. I mean, if he was sitting on this side and he had all his chess pieces up here, this, this king over here, he was shaking his boots because he knew, well, he was going to lose to be rendered helpless. And then I started thinking about this little conversation I had with my little buddy Johnny this last week about checkmating. And I started thinking about the world the way that we live right now, there is so much checkmating going on in life. I mean, everybody has to, like, be right. Everybody's got to win. There's just this tension going on in life right now. It's just, it's pretty intense. Matter of fact, here's a thought. You know, the reason why there's so many divorces um, in the world today is, and I just made this up, is because so many mates are trying to checkmate their mates. Did you hear that? I, I just made that up. That's true. They're, they're, because everybody's got to be right. You've got to have the last word in. And then there's all this tension going on. So the reason why there's about 50% of Americans end up in divorce is because they're trying to checkmate their mates. And so, you know, I started thinking about this this last week about the idea about, so the idea of checkmating each other, there's a whole lot of checkmating going on. And, and there's a term for that, that we use here in the world, in America, and we call it polarization. So this is called like, okay, mask or no mask, or vaccination or no vaccination, or service with or service without vaccination cards, or Republican or Democrat, or conservative or liberal. Last summer, it was Black Lives Matter, or Asian Lives Matter, or Hispanic Lives Matter, or All Lives Matter. There's all this been polarization going on. People trying to checkmate each other, one-up them, got to be right. Everybody believes they're right. So there's all this tension going on. Do you realize that even in Jesus, and, uh, the way that Jesus lived his life and um, really um, ended up, there was a whole lot of polarization just because of Jesus. I mean, you just mentioned the name of Jesus and all of a sudden, you know, some people get a little antsy. They, I've been in many uh, clubs. I've gone to Rotary clubs and civic clubs and the, when I was in Miami. And so if I mentioned the name Jesus, people got a little, little antsy about that. Just mention the name of Jesus. Jesus' intention was never to polarize people. Let me tell you, Jesus was not about polarization. Jesus was all about unification. 
bringing us all together for one cause. And Jesus laid it all out for us all to follow this. He says, you're supposed to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole, that's it. Jesus, and Wesley would call that um, our ticket towards holiness, to love God and to love our neighbor. And so to love God and love a neighbor is not about polarization. Jesus said, no, 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 it's all, it's all about unification. And, you know, I started thinking of this last week, you know, about Jesus and the idea of Jesus. I mean, they, there, there were those who tried to render Jesus helpless. Did you ever think about that? I mean, here is Jesus, and there were the, I mean, the Sanhedrin tried to render Jesus helpless. Uh, Pilate tried to render Jesus helpless. Um, they brought in some people, as I shared in that sermon series about the Ten Commandments of bearing false witness. They even brought in some people who were um, trying with some trumped up charges. They were all trying to render Jesus helpless. The checkmate, Jesus. You know, next week, uh, about a week or well, two weeks, uh, we're going to have, um, we're going to remember 9-11. 20 years. We all remember that day. Can't forget it. And so, um, I'll never forget this. Um, shortly right after 9-11, uh, here's, here's an interesting thing. You all remember this. Do you remember the Sunday after 9-11? Churches were full. I remember my church was full. I remember literally that the attendance like doubled that particular day. You know why? It's because people were, well, I think they were afraid. I think people felt a sense that they needed to come together and they kind of felt like they needed to reconnect with their, their spiritual connection. And so it was powerful. I, I thought that was wonderful. I think it was great. And so we had a fantastic worship experience that day and, um, and uh, very, very mem- memorable. And then what happened the next week? It went back to, it went back to normal. I'll never forget that. We peaked and then it went back. I'll I, I never forget my friend Michelle. Michelle came to my office one day right after 911. Uh, Michelle and her husband were um, devout to my, they loved my church, they loved me, they loved my family, her children all came to Sunday school, they came every Sunday, they were fantastic members of my church at Faith. Um, she was from Egypt, which meant that her complexion was a little bit darker, because she's from that part of the world. Um, and so I remember her coming to my office one day, and she was extremely upset, this right the week after 9-11. And I said, Michelle, what's wrong? And she was crying. And she says, Pastor Harold, there's so many people who are yelling at me. I said, what are they yelling at you about? They're yelling at me to go back to my home because they automatically assume that I'm Muslim and I'm the source of the reason why 9-11 happened. I want you to go back. So they're throwing insults at her, checkmating her trying to render her helpless. And then she said to me, I'll never forget this, she said, and she has tears streaming in her eyes. She says, Pastor Harold, she says, I'm an American. I've been an American my whole life. She says, Pastor Harold, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole life. Why are people treating me like this? Checkmate. 
to render the other person helpless. And I asked myself as I was reflected upon that, where's the grace in all that? I mean, there doesn't seem to be hardly, there's, there isn't a grace. There, is, there isn't a grace in that. I mean, what's interesting about this is the word grace is the word in the Greek. It's called kara, K-A-R-A. Do you know what the, the derivative of that word not only has to do with grace in the Greek, but it also has to do with joy and rejoicing. So find our joy in our circumstances, even in, sometimes in adversity, Offering grace in our circumstances. And so the challenge for all of us is Paul has challenged us to continue to offer grace to each other. Do you realize in all 27 books in the New Testament, there's all, everywhere there's some kind of conflict and some kind of adversity. Every one of them. There's something going on in every single one of the books in the New Testament deals with some kind of conflict. It's there. If you look for it. It's about... Well, a lot of times it has to do with rank, honor, prestige, one-upmanship, having to win. Go look at the Gospel of Luke and that story where Jesus is holding the Last Supper. Guess what the disciples are doing? They're arguing who's going to be the greatest. Don't miss the detail. I mean, I want to be right. I want to be best. I want to be the greatest. And so we find here that Paul is revealing to us and he's dealing with his own kind of, uh, his own situation, his own conflict. Matter of fact, here's what we find Paul says in the second chapter of Philippians. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and one of one mind. To be like Christ, Paul says. And, and you know, he's dealing with his own stuff here. He's dealing with his own, there's, there's, some, there's some animosity going on in his church. Here's the interesting thing. If you go back and look at the fourth chapter, you find there's two ladies who are arguing about something. We don't know exactly what they're arguing, but um, Yoda and Sentisha said, you both belong to the Lord. This is Paul talking. So please agree with each other. For this, I make a special request to my friend who has served with me so faithfully. Help these women. He's pleading with, help these women. They've worked hard with me in telling people the good news together with Clement and the others who work with me. Their names are written in the book of life, Paul says. And so Paul is playing, listen, here's the interesting thing. Paul is on trial for his life. And he, he gets this message 800 miles away. And he's sending a message back because there's conflict in his church between these two ladies. And he's pleading with them, being the same mind of Jesus Christ. I don't know what they're arguing over, but chances are they're probably arguing, arguing over a cup of dish dinner. Are we going to have paper plates? Or are we going to eat on the good china tonight, right? <laughs> Paul is dealing with controversy. He's also dealing with controversy when the, the more conservative Orthodox Christians who were trying to follow the 613 laws that they had, but part of their Jewish tradition, and the Libertines who were more progressive in their thinking, and they believed in Jesus, and they loved the great Jesus, and they believed that he died for their sins and so forth, but they just haven't, didn't have any clue about actually applying that and living as servants for Jesus Christ. They did, they, somehow there was just this disconnect between actually believing in Christ and living the life of Christ. 
And so we find here, it's very interesting, is that, that Paul comes up with this antidote about the idea, once again, even in the early church, even as churches in Philippi, they're trying to checkmate each other. They're trying to one-up one another, trying to be right. There, there's this tension going on. And Paul says, hey, whatever you do, don't let selfishness or pride be your guide. Be humble and honor others more than yourselves. Don't be interested only in your life, but care about the lives of others. In your life together, think the way that Christ Jesus thought. This is Paul says. It's not about you, Paul says. You know, there was a campaign that was put out back in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy. His name was Michael Jordan. Right? And so Michael Jordan, they all, everybody, Gatorade had, be like Mike. You know, you drink Gatorade, be like Mike. It's going to make you a better basketball player. You're going to be able to jump higher. And, and if you put on a Michael jo- Jordan jersey, you, you, it's going to make you play better. If you put on Michael Jordan Nike sneakers, it's going to make you play better. So you have all the stuff, this major campaign, because Michael Jordan was considered the greatest athlete in the world in, the, in his time. So let's just all be like Mike. And so what Paul is saying, hey, listen, let's be like Christ. Put on the mind of Christ. And putting on the mind of Christ is not about one-upmanship. It's not about bickering. It's not about having to be right. It's about loving. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor yourself. And he says, now that is right. I, I love the way that Paul put this out. Listen, hold on. This is what Paul says as he continues after verse five. He says, he was like God, talking about Jesus. He was like God in every way, but he did not think that his being equal with God was something to use for his own benefit. No, 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 Paul says. Instead, he gave up everything, even his place with God, and he accepted the role of a slave appearing in human form. During his life, a man humbled himself, being fully obedient to God, even that caused him death. Oh, wait a minute. Here's the interesting thing. So Paul calls Jesus, and he gives him this imagery that he accepted his role as a slave. Now listen, last week I teach, uh, was actually teaching on this. And I, so Paul comes right out of the gate. When he talks about in the book of Philippians, he ta- he's talking about being a servant. Or is he really talking about being a slave? He says, I'm Elliot, is he a servant? And, and the literal translation, chances are, Paul is really referring to himself as a slave. Now there is a difference between a servant and a slave. Because as I shared with you all last week, a servant can come and go as he pleases. But if you're a slave, you can't do that. So Paul lowers himself to the status of being a slave. And he refers to Jesus as being a slave here in the book of Philippians. So here's the interesting thing. Well, I share with you all the question I asked you all last week and for me myself. Are you willing not to just come and go as a Christian, but to be Christ's possession forever? There is a difference between being a servant or being a slave. Now, here's just a thought. We have to understand the context in which the Roman Empire. Okay, so let me teach for a second. Okay, so if you were a part of the Roman Empire, and, and Paul is a part of the Roman Empire, the, the Philippi is a part of the Roman Empire. We know that Paul is from Tarsus, and he was actually a Roman citizen. So when it came to the culture of the Roman Empire, it was, not, it was all about rank. It was all about honor. It was all about status. It was all about climbing the ladder. This is the context of the day. 
Matter of fact, when I found this last week, I thought, if you could, the secret of happiness, you ready? The secret of happiness in Paul's day, if you were a part of the Roman Empire, could be summed up in this, ultimately, this sentence. Advance yourself, promote yourself, and serve yourself. If you really want, this is what the Roman Empire is all about. It was all about me. It's all about being able to rise up. The latter. Matter of fact, about 98% of the people were in the masses. 2% were considered part of the, of the elite. You have the haves and the have-nots. You have the somebodies and the nobodies. You have the elites and the non-elites. And so this is how it all broke out, right? You had the slaves. And the slaves were the bottom of the barrel. They couldn't come as go as they pleased. They had to be obedient to their master. Then you had the freedmen. Now the freedmen were, well... They were like one step above a slave, but they weren't slaves. They, they were more in the servant role. They, 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 um, matter of fact, it, it, what's interesting in the Roman Empire, how you dressed even reflected your status. So if you were a freeman, you could actually wear a hat. And the next person, well, up the rank, so you got a slave, then you got a freeman, and then you, well, if you're a Roman citizen, oh, wow, okay, you could wear a toga. Right? This is important. That meant that you are actually, and if you were a Roman citizen, you had some rights. Matter of fact, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. We know the people from Tarsus were a part of Roman citizens. There were about 300,000 people in that city. And so because he was a part of the city, he actually had Roman citizenship, which meant that you could, well, for example, you couldn't flog a Roman citizen. Which is exactly what happened when he went to Philippi and he gets himself in some hot water because he exercised this exorcism on this slave girl and the, and the slave owners get really upset because now she can't tell the fortunes that, they, that she was making them money and now they've taken away part of her, their livelihood and they get really angry with Paul that he's done such a thing. And they, throw, they actually take him in the middle of the square, they flog him, they strip him naked and then throw him in jail, right? When we talked about that last week. You know what? They kind of got big, big trouble for that. You know why? You can't flog a Roman citizen. And Paul says, you have flogged me. And so then they start backtracking. And then they let him out of jail. He has power because he's a Roman citizen. Okay, so then you got the slave, then you got the freeman, then you got the, the Roman citizens, and then you got what they would call the equestrians. And the equestrians were really, well, equestrians had, well, well had to do with if you owned horses, that meant you had money. And so you could actually have some status with that. So you could actually wear a toga, but you could also wear a gold ring. And the next step up were the senators. And the senators, well, oh, wow, you were really somebody if you were a senator because you had all kinds of rights. I mean, not only could you wear a toga, not only could you wear a ring, not only could, oh, one minute, your, your attire could even have a purple sash. You were somebody. It's all about rank. Status. Okay, so you got a slave, then you got a freeman, you could wear a hat, then you got a, a Roman citizen, you had some rights, then you had equestrians, they rode horses, they had money, senators, and then you got Caesar. Caesar could win, wear whatever he wanted because he was Caesar. Do you realize that even Caesar, they, well, they looked at Caesar because, well, he was like God. I mean, he was the top of the top. And so when you look at the culture of Roman Empire back then, it was all about rank. It's all about moving up. It's all about moving up the ladder. It had everything to do with honor or shame. 
Matter of fact, even how you, when you went to uh, events, sporting events, you know, they were a part of the Roman Empire. It's where you sat was really important. Just your position around the arena was, it tells you, I mean, you know, listen, if you were a senator, you were not in nosebleed sections. No, no, no. If you were a senator, you know where you were sitting? Can you say that picture of Jack Nicholson? You were sitting next to Jack Nicholson at, at the Laker game. You were a front row, right? So this is the way that it all worked in the Roman Empire. So no wonder, no wonder. I put all this together this week. Paul is raised in this context. The people of Philippians are all raised in this context. It's all about moving up the, the rank. It's all about moving up the ladder. It's all about being right. It's all about power and prestige and honor, right? This is a big, big deal. So no wonder Paul was trying to make a name for himself. No wonder Paul was willing to volunteer. Hey, listen, I hear about those Christians up in Damascus. I'll volunteer and go up that 180 miles to go get them and bring them back and bring them back to the Sanhedrin. Because you know what? Paul wanted to be a part of the Sanhedrin. He wanted to be one of the elite of the leads. No wonder. So you find this, this idea of how, once again, the Saul was trying to make a name of himself. And then, as we shared last week, Jesus had to come to Jesus with Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Wow. No wonder Saul was trying to make a name for himself because he was being raised in this culture. It was all about being higher and higher in prestige. And then here's the interesting thing. So, so Paul talks about how in this imagery of, of Jesus, and he says, hey, listen, don't you realize this? So out of all the things, Paul talks about himself being a slave, but he also talked about Jesus being a slave. And what's very powerful is that he even says, and being found in appearance of a, as a man, he humbled himself. Who humbled himself? Nobody wanted to be humbled in the Roman Empire. It was not about being humble. No, it was all about prestige and honor. It was all about going up the ladder. Nobody humbled themselves. And then, then he goes on and says, and not only did he humble himself, but he talked about Jesus being obedient. Nobody wanted to be obedient. Let me tell you who's obedient in the Roman Empire. Children had to be obedient. Do you know who else had to be obedient? A slave had to be obedient. There was only two people had to be obedient in the Roman Empire. Everybody else is not about humility. Humility? Really? No, 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 no. It's all the secret success has everything to do with advancing yourself, promoting yourself, and serving yourself. And yet Paul talks about Jesus. He says, listen, he became a slave. He humbled himself. He was willing to be obedient. Even obedient to death upon a cross. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you realize? Because, see, what does Paul call Jesus? A slave. Do you know what they would call crucifixion back in first century? They called it the slave's punishment. Paul couldn't be crucified because he's a Roman citizen. But Jesus wasn't a Roman citizen. The slave's punishment. Obedient unto death. Humbled himself as a slave. Oh. And then you get to the very end. Oh, wow. 
This is what Paul says. Therefore God exalted himself to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that ever, all at, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and heaven and earth and under earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here, here's the good news. You really realize that the Nero, woman, Caesar is not the Lord. Nero is not the Lord. Herod is not the Lord. You know, let me tell you something. Oh, don't you realize this? Don't you realize this? They tried to checkmate Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate tried to checkmate Jesus Christ. What is the definition of checkmate? To render the king helpless. Caesar tried to checkmate Jesus Christ. Herod tried to checkmate Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate tried to checkmate Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin tried to checkmate Jesus Christ. They brought in a bunch of witnesses to be able to checkmate Jesus Christ. But you cannot checkmate Jesus Christ. And the reason why you cannot checkmate Jesus Christ is because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the prince of peace. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the rose of Sharon. You cannot checkmate Jesus Christ. Oh, they thought they could. They thought they could. But Easter came on Easter Sunday morning. We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our side. Oh, don't even get me going. <laughs> so as hard as they tried, as hard as they tried, as hard as they tried to check me, Jesus Christ, they just couldn't render him helpless because up from the grave... He arose.